Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and why politicians need to stop using the slap meme. I want to thank our federal partners for their collaboration, which was critical in landing this childcare agreement. It's a great deal for Ontario parents and the right deal for Ontarians. Today, with Ontario finally signing on to a childcare deal, we'll compare what people across the country are getting and whether it changes the way the federal government finances big countrywide deals. Plus, we got some real insight last week into how the government's climate plan is going to work. If there's any oil and gas sector in the world that can do it, it's Canada. This is not a real plan to reduce emissions. And in fact, I would argue it obstructs the rollout of a real plan that would actually address climate change. We'll dig into the good, the bad and the ugly. Joining me this week from St. John's, Newfoundland, now COVID-free and dealing with two budgets later this week, Drew Brown, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent. Welcome back. It's wonderful to be here, as always. From Montreal, where hockey fans turned against Justin Bieber, Emily Nicola, columnist for Le Devoir, The Gazette, and CBC. We'll not comment on Justin Bieber. <laughs> we'll we'll just, just abstain from this conversation. We'll stay away from it. <laughs> and from Ottawa, home to Canada's hot Hottest nightlife, Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of The Hub. Hey, I'm genuinely clueless about the Bieber thing. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it and see if it comes up. Last week, Ontario finally finalized a childcare deal with the federal government, making them the last province or territory to do so. The federal government set out last year to make agreements across the country to bring down the cost of childcare to $10 a day within five years. That will have a huge impact on families. In Toronto, for example, people could pay upwards of $20,000 a year for an infant program. 
but it's also about our society, how it's structured, and who it values. Just like every child, every deal is a little bit unique. So now that every province and territory is on board, we can take a moment to compare different deals across the country and what they tell us about who has power and how that affects the services everyone receives. So Stuart, you're in Ottawa. You're the father of two lovely girls. Ontario held out the longest despite having some of the highest fees in Canada. Do you think the provincial government was genuinely pushing for a better deal or was there something else at play? You know, I'm not going to totally dismiss out of hand the conspiracy theory that there's an election coming. And I I mean, <laughs> I have not a, a conspiracy anymore. Another <laughs> yeah. Ford is running. Yeah, well, you know, and I'm getting a few hundred bucks back a month on my daycare uh, fees. And as much as I like I'm not a huge fan of the way this program is rolling out. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it is. It's better than nothing, I think. But I would sort of quibble with the liberal government's plans for this. But it's still 300 bucks, I think, like roughly. I think I'm getting something like that. So yeah, I, I, I could imagine they were looking for that. But there is also some complications in Ontario because we have the um, you know junior kindergarten all day. Um, it did actually complicate the funding formula a little bit. So it was a more complicated negotiation. And there was a genuine chance that Ontario and Ontario parents could get a little bit screwed relative to the rest of the country. So, you know, maybe it's like 50-50. It's 50% conspiracy theory and 50% just this was a hard negotiation and it just took a little bit longer. Can I ask, why aren't you happy with the rollout? So if you are listening to this podcast on like some fancy Bose headphones or something like that, you may hear a child crying because my next door neighbor, we live in a townhome. She runs a, a home daycare there. And I love it because I have two little girls who can just walk outside and there's like half a dozen kids just waiting for them to play with. It's pretty great. They have a crier right now, um, which you may be hearing. But other than that, like it, it's wonderful and it's great for the parents who go there. It's flexible. It starts whenever they need it to start because she's always ready for the kids. But those parents uh, get nothing from this. And also, you know, now my neighbor is competing with this $10 a day daycare down the road, which is hard. I mean, they're basically undercutting her services. We didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. My brother and I basically spent our childhood like going to different strange homes where different women would look after us. Like some of them were like daycare. Some of them were just babysitters. Some of them were just seemingly random women that my mom found. So that tends to be what happens on the lower end of the income scale is that people are going to these unlicensed places and they don't really get anything out of this. So just sort of based on my experience, my own childhood experience and, you know, looking at my neighbor's situation, I kind of like the idea of just giving cash to parents who go to a place like this. Like, I understand the arguments about spots and there are some real benefits we've seen out of the Quebec model. But, you know, on balance, if I was choosing one or the other, I think you sort of hit everybody if you do something like a child benefit. See, the issue is so complicated, which is why I wanted to get into it, because it's a lot of money on the line. And Stuart, you rightly point out that unlicensed daycares aren't part of it. This is a very carefully chosen portion of the daycare system that is being funded and, and, and being assisted by the federal government and the provinces. Drew, Newfoundland and Labrador were one of the first provinces to sign on. What's going on there? Why were they so quick to accept this deal? First, before we get into the childcare discussion, I would like to clarify that I am a childless adult, so I don't have a horse in this fight right now. Uh, whether or not I have one down the road is a different story, but this I can talk about. I do genuinely think a big part of why Newfoundland and Labrador was so quick to sign on to it was because um, immediately before this new childcare program was announced, our provincial government changed uh, leaders. 
So uh, Dwight Ball, former premier, stepped down. There was a leadership race. Um, Andrew Fury uh, won. And pretty much the only thing in his platform at the time was the promise to introduce a $25 a day uh, childcare program, which, as we all sort of suspected at the time and found out later, was just kind of like a, <laughs> a cover for when the federal government would come up the year after and then announce they were going to bring in their own federal childcare plan. So it would all just sort of like roll very smoothly together. So we did get a bit of a head start on it which mainly just meant we started talking about all of the, how are we going to address like the, the major capacity issues in providing all of these childcare spaces at this price in a way that also doesn't necessarily unfairly push out the unlicensed childcare centers, which I'm not quite sure we've actually uh, solved that problem yet, but uh, I'm expecting that we'll hear something about it in one or two of the budgets on Thursday, um, <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> Well, so one thing that stands out about this deal particularly is the creation of a pre-kindergarten program for four years old. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the childcare model is being used to actually also maybe innovate just education for the youngest members of our society. So how big of a deal is that in, in the province, Drew? It is definitely like a big deal here. We know like childcare has been an issue that we've known about at least since the 70s and 80s. Um, although obviously the pandemic has kind of pushed it to the fore now because um, suddenly all the men involved in the decision making have realized the difficulty of being stuck at home with a child all day. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, but maybe not. So, I, I mean, I think that's that's definitely a big part of it. I think in terms of the, yeah, in terms of innovating on the, in the, the education system here, I mean, I don't know, the, the provincial government is uh, very desperate to get more people either having more kids or moving here with their kids. Um, and I think sort of like providing something on the front end for the, the education system might incentivize that in, in, in some way. Emily, meanwhile, in Quebec, they got a unique deal because they already offer daycare at under $10 a day. So the government just gave them $6 billion with no conditions for how to spend it. So what do you think that says about the relationship between Quebec and Ottawa versus the other provinces? Um, I can answer that. But before I go there, I feel like a lot of the conversation that's happening in the rest of the country is premised on what people understand of what is the Quebec model. But we don't necessarily take the time to explain what that is. Um, so, like, the program has been in place since the late the late nineties, and you have a lot of subsidized spots, but there is still private childcare in Quebec. And so, this is really interesting for me to listen to the conversation with uh, you know people who are worried about unlicensed uh, childcare. But the thing is, people fight for the public spots because the public spots have uh, sort of a curriculum, right? And people have. Uh, training. The, the issue is that when you are in uh, communities that have very different uh, level of you know, income and social realities in general, what happens when you just do that is that you have very uneven level of preparation for kids when they come to the school system, when they come to uh, kindergarten and then grade one. So the childcare model is also about evening and quality of chances in terms of early childhood de de development, sorry, and making sure that every kid comes to school with basic, you know, skills that will help them be in school because we know that, you know, income and, and other realities have a huge impact on kids' ability to stay in school. So I feel like we're having a conversation about money, but we're not having a conversation about kids' well-being. And that was also one of the primary intent of Quebec's child program and the way we're having conversations, not just about, you know, moms being able to work full time, which 
it is also a really positive result. And we see the gaps between Quebec and other provinces in terms of that for many, many years. But the conversation goes beyond that. It's because also we don't value the skills of the people who have studied to do early childcare development. It's a three-year degree after high school here. It's a CEGEP program. Because we don't value those skills, those women are underpaid. It's largely women. And because they're underpaid, there's been labor shortage. There's been strikes in Quebec for years. And so that's where the conversation is at, is that we know those women are, are skilled and we don't pay them for their skills. And so it makes the private sector boom. And the private sector is heavily subsidized. So if you're a middle-class parent, when you do get a spot in the private, because of how much you get on your tax return, it's not necessarily uh, costing you more. But the result is that you're not necessarily getting the same um, quality of uh, activities for your kids. So I feel like we're, we're having, I guess because the issues are still different, you guys are like dreaming about having childcare and not having to spend like, tens of thousands of dollars per year. But then when you do have it, you get to those other challenges. And so to go back to your original question, I don't know that it tells anything about the relationship between Quebec and Ottawa, that it tells something about the generation of feminists that fought for it so that it made it happen in the 90s. And yeah, we can talk about, you know, why Quebec has a specific history of feminism there. But I think that's what the story uh, speaks to. No, and I'm glad you connected all the dots in that way because we have been bogged down into number, like the magical $10 mm-hmm. number. And, yeah. and, and we've yeah. been bogged down into costs in, in the wake of like, you know, a very expensive economy lately. But it is a holistic problem for kids, parents, and aspiring parents. Mm-hmm. In many jurisdictions across the country, as has been pointed out throughout this conversation, there also just aren't enough spaces. So even though the math seems fun and magical... Waitlist can be over a year in some cases, and in fact, there have been stories of increased demand for childcare because of the lower prices. So the supply is just not catching up. So yeah. this doesn't solve our problems immediately. It doesn't solve any of the kids' problems immediately. And I wonder if any of you have thoughts on on whether you expect the Liberal government to address the subsequent issues that come with lowering the price of daycare. That is probably the fundamental problem here, is that it's not a f- full system. And, you know, I I take your point, Emily, about, you know, focusing too much on the numbers, but my budget is really like, <laughs> it's it's stressed, right? Like we're all looking at inflation. And I, I think mm-hmm. of, you know, my wife works, I work, we have pretty good jobs. We're probably fine. And I'm getting a discount on my daycare fees. There's a little bit of survivor's guilt there for me, though, about how just because someone in a you know lower income is not in a licensed daycare, they're getting nothing and I'm getting something. So if you're a millionaire taking your kid to a licensed daycare and getting this big rebate, there's something that's just not fair about that. And maybe the program had to be this way. Maybe it has to be universal to make it work in the way the liberals intend. But once we start talking about shortages, once we start talking about limited spaces, it really does become a question of who gets those spaces and who is getting the money that's going through. And, you know, Drew, you mentioned that, you know, you don't have kids, so you have less to say on this, but like, that's, that's your money too. Like these are your tax dollars. So you in the future too, will be possibly using daycare, maybe not, but also there's other, you know, we're talking about um, opportunity cost here where, you know, the government is now talking about spending more on defense spending. We're looking at debt. Like there's a lot to spend on here. So how we spend limited funds, I think is really important. And I would really worry if I were a proponent of this program. And at this point, 
you know, I basically am because it's here. And I think the big problem for proponents is that if this starts to look super unfair, that people in wealthy neighborhoods are taking their kids to $10 a day daycare and enjoying that while other people who desperately need it are not really getting anything. The liberals did bring in the child benefit, which means they're getting essentially a, a universal basic income for each kid. That's helpful, but it doesn't solve the daycare problem. So these are all things I think we'll have to deal with as time goes on. And it is the opportunity cost that you mentioned, Stuart, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Because in this era of so many problems that the government could tackle, the choice to put huge amounts of money into childcare, which is obviously very, very important, but how they're spending that money, where it's going, and whether it's actually going to solve this one problem that they've identified is a big question for all of us. And I wonder if this patchwork of childcare agreements across the country provides a framework or even a new funding model for other things like a national pharmacare or dental care program. If it's a framework, it's not going to be a national framework, because once again, I think the conversation from province uh, to provinces is going to be very different. Uh, for example, in terms of pharmacare, Quebec City has been pushing for more than a decade now the idea of having a pharma Quebec. And it's not just to have, you know, just some public insurance on pharmacy. It's also to tackle the issue of pharmaceutical development being something that only the private sector is in and only for profit, which just how much money has the government of Canada just given to Pfizer and Moderna over the last two years, right? So that's where some people in Quebec are at. And I don't think that some people in other provinces will be there at all. The ambitions that every province will have will be different. Obviously, the CAC government is not there. But that conversation has been growing and growing. And I think because of, of the pandemic, there is more of a momentum now to be having this conversation on, on the role of the private sector in pharmaceutics in general. So, yeah, so I, I don't think there's going to be a national national framework on, on that either. It's been announced with the NDP Liberal that there's a coalition and they're going to be looking into it. But it's still going to look to me at least a, like a model where Quebec is trying to, going to be a little bit different. And if other provinces actually do want to jump in, then good for them as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I look at this liberal government and how they've negotiated with each province for a year mm -hmm. and how they have tried to sort of address the different ambitions, to use your word, Emily, in the childcare space. But the pandemic really set the stage for, you know, all provinces to figure this out with the federal government. And I wonder if that sort of model or that sort of negotiation is what we're going to see moving forward for other big problems. Yeah, I mean, I think... Constitutionally, healthcare is provincial jurisdiction, but also like the federal government is is averse to sort of like creating and running and managing its own programs. The idea seems to be to sort of like pass the money to the provinces, will then pass the money to whatever sort of system they have in place already or want to create. And so in terms of something like pharmacare, you're going to have the federal government negotiating these sort of like 10 different sub deals with each province, which has its own you know, its own model and capacity for health service delivery. And it's going to have its own government in place that may or may not align ideologically or even on a partisan basis with the federal government of the time. Um, so you'll see some provinces, like hypothetically, if Newfoundland Labrador remains the only liberal jurisdiction at the provincial level in Canada, um, will probably play ball with whatever the federal liberal party wants to do. But I imagine the negotiation will look very different with like Doug Ford's Ontario or Jason Kenney slash Brian Jean's Alberta. Um, 
right? Uh, so, yeah, I guess I guess all this to say that uh, federalism, uh, once again, is the cause of and solution to all of Canada's <laughs> problems, especially when it comes to trying to get any programming done ever. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Point of order, Madam Speaker? What is your point of order, Stuart? I just wanted to point out that Pierre Polyev had a rally in Lindsay, Ontario, with 1,000 people on the weekend. There's 20,000 people in Lindsay, Ontario. They're surrounding communities. But uh, this keeps happening. And I think it's something worth paying attention to. There's definitely some energy here. And I just wanted to bring this up because everyone I know in the sort of commentariat in journalism really, really, really hates Pierre Polyev, like a lot, like personally despises him. And I think it might be clouding their judgment of what his appeal is and how much appeal he actually has because it's so confounding to them. So I would just say, try to keep an open mind, try to figure out what's going on here. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of stories about is it a nefarious thing that's leading people to Pierre Polyev? It could be. It also could not be. I think this should lead to some interesting journalism. Not a point of order, but as long as Pierre Polyev can keep churning out videos that I can turn into memes, I will follow his <laughs> campaign along. Yeah, that's a lock. Madam Speaker, can I make a point of order? What is your point of order, Emily? Can I um, ask for an embargo on <laughs> every and all Will Smith meme <laughs> used by politicians or journalists in this country? <laughs> I'm going to be very specific because this is the theme of the show, but as far as I'm concerned, it should be on everyone. But on behalf of the National Association of Black People, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. Jason Kenney and God knows how many journalists who think we are being clever uh, by using that image of the slab. It's just like, it's not, don't, it's not funny. Uh, you think you're being clever, but it's not funny. Also, it doesn't make sense. Green energy cannot slap the oil and gas industry. Like, no, can we at no. least have a modicum of reality in memes? No, you guys are not comedian and it shows. Like, it's not funny. <laughs> not a point of order, but God, I wish it was a point of order. <laughs> Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Drew? Well, I'm going to hijack this program and speak to all of my expatriate Newfoundlanders and Labradorians across the country. Um, it has come home year 2022. We desperately need you to stop whatever you're doing this summer and come back immediately. The Premier's had a really rough two years. He needs a lot of good photo ops. COVID's <laughs> been really hard on everybody. We just need to come home, take a lot of photos, post a lot about it on social media. Um, the Premier really needs this. <laughs> and uh, I think in many ways, we all kind of need this. Um, and, you know, like, we're now in week three of absolutely no COVID precautionary measures anymore. Um, there is no more free place in Canada than Newfoundland right now. 
pay no attention to any of the hospitalizations or case rates. Um, not good vibes. We're all about good vibes here lately. So <laughs> I'm encouraging you highly to come back and like book a hotel room if you can find one. Rent a car if you can find one, which you can't actually. Let's just have like a real good summer. Um, a real good summer back at home. Please spend money. Thank you. Uh, this has been a uh, public service announcement from the Newfoundland and Labrador Embassy. Uh, we can now resume our regularly scheduled programming. Um, not a point of order, clearly. But listen, if there's a jump in tourism on the East Coast, it's all Drew's it's fault. 100% attributable to me on this show right now. Definitely. I'll be there at the end of July. Your call has been answered. There's never been a better time to be here as long as you don't mind the higher probability of catching COVID. But <laughs> that's okay. So Justin Trudeau's government made a national climate change plan part of their platform when they first ran in 2015. But their record in this file has been mixed. They introduced measures like carbon pricing and set a date to phase out coal, but they've also missed nearly every single one of their emissions targets and bought a pipeline with public money. Now, on their third term, just a week before their budget, they released a comprehensive plan for reaching net zero emissions by the year 2050. It's called the Emissions Reduction Plan. It's the first report that is now legally required under a law that was introduced last year, the Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. This law establishes a legally binding process to set five-year national emissions reduction targets and create credible science-based plans to achieve each target. The plan that the government just put out includes $9.1 billion of new investments in things like zero-emission vehicles, a plan to help farmers develop more sustainable practices, a green building strategy, and a steep and predicted rise in carbon pricing. Importantly, while it mentions a cap on oil and gas emissions, this cap doesn't go into effect until possibly 2023. Stephen Guibault, the environment minister, said he needs more time to consult on the details, even though a new IPCC report released on Monday, just as we're recording, says oil and gas emissions need to be decreased significantly and rapidly over the next eight years. As expected, the Liberal government's plan is getting criticized from all angles. Climate advocates are applauding some of the measures, but some are saying it doesn't go far enough to address the climate crisis. And Alberta's NDP leader, Rachel Notley, not Jason Kenney, Rachel Notley, said reaching that 2030 target is a fantasy. That's a quote. And that the plan will get in the way of real progress. So today, I thought we'd go around the table or the Zoom window and ask everyone to identify the good, the bad, and the ugly of the new emissions reduction plan because the climate crisis is still happening, in case you missed it. So let's start with Stuart. What's the good? Uh, yeah, I had no notes on the good. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm starting to wonder if maybe there is a possibility that these targets are not achievable in a way that is politically feasible. And it's worth remembering that the populist opposition to the carbon tax in BC was from the NDP. You know, not like the Alberta NDP, which is kind of a different thing, but the BC NDP. And it shows you how easy it is to make political hay out of rising prices. And we're seeing that right now because we're watching inflation go up for a variety of reasons, but I'm seeing it whenever I fill up my friggin' suburban minivan. And I think you know, we're watching governments react to this, like in Quebec, they're giving out checks, which is actually a solution that will make the problem worse. And it makes me worry because we have a $50 
per ton carbon tax right now. It's going to go up to $170 by 2030. Can you imagine how prices are going to change at the pump with that? The Liberal government says they're politically ready to handle that. But the way governments are reacting relative to the recent past, high inflation, but relative to the less recent past, you know, minor inflation, it does not bode well for how they handle rising prices associated with all of the things we're doing to fight climate change. So uh, I think there is a very serious concern here. And when we legislate these targets, it's probably good that it makes the targets, you know, harder to just go past. But it does create that problem of there's no political wiggle room for a government to sort of like sense where the vibe is and maybe do things a different way. Um, I have thoughts on what Stuart said, but I'm going to throw to Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear them, actually, because you're sort of the expert here. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I would say that I think the biggest problem when we talk about this legislation and the accountability measures that the government is trying to put in place is there is no flexibility. And also there should be flexibility because of the political conversations that are happening around it. And for me, as someone who's sort of had climate change, like shadowing her entire life, I'm also like, at what point do we just figure it out and and just come to the table with the same mindset as opposed to, okay, but no, if we increase the carbon tax, we're not going to get elected next election because I actually don't care about that. For me, it's more like I might not be able to breathe in 10 years if we don't figure this out. And that's a very extreme way to put it. But I feel like the political will often overshadows the need to actually figure this out in the best way possible. And if this legislation isn't the right way to do this or if this plan that the liberal government isn't the right way to do this, I would like to see an alternative, more effective plan be proposed as opposed to just, hey, this is not good because it's going to make life even more expensive in the short term for everyone, which is valid, of course. I mean, I'm paying the same gas price as you are, Stuart, in, in suburban Mississauga, and I don't fill my tank full anymore. Like, I can't. I'm like, 30 bucks is all I, I can put in my car, which is a Honda Civic. It's not even a minivan. And I will drive it as much as I can drive it and, and try and minimize driving as much as possible, which I think is the point uh, to offer a disincentive. But in my head, it does connect to the climate crisis. And I know that maybe this might help, but only if everyone gets on the same page, which is not as articulate as Stuart, but that's my immediate response to, to what you said and, and why I keep trying to talk about this on the backbench to try and get everyone thinking about it. But Emily, jump in here. Good and bad, what do you see in this plan that they just put out? And, and what do you think about how Stuart set up the conversation? I mean, this is the first climate action plan uh, that Canada has that is like legally mandated. It's not just wishful thinking. So that's maybe why there's some details lacking, because it means more if you put the details in there. So that's as generous as I'm going to be in terms of the good. I will say that the part about stocking CO2 and insisting on that feels a little bit uh, like that part in the Don't Look Up movie <laughs> when like we all know that this big meteorite is going to hit uh, the earth and then the corporations are like, yeah, but like, can't we just mine it instead of, you know, blowing it out of its trajectory? And uh, obviously uh, that doesn't work, right? And we know how the movie ends. But I feel like that's what the metaphor, that movie, that what was it for? It's like, let's not do, stop doing like oil and gas. Let's just try to 
explore these new technologies because we have like this blind faith in technology that technology is going to save us all. There's still this optimism that is about like we're going to we're just going to, you know, make our technology smarter, greener so that we're going to live exactly the same way as we are used to live in North America specifically and just, you know, make that green. And I feel like there hasn't been a conversation about the fact that we will need to change our lifestyles. And we've been able to have that conversation during the pandemic. The third thing that I will say that is, I feel like lacking in this plan, you guys were just mentioning suburbia and just having cars. And like, I'm in the heart of the Plateau Mont-Royal. Like, obviously, I don't have that issue. Obviously, it doesn't mean me better than you. It just means that you have access to transit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like this conversation about it's not just it's the conversation about how we organize our cities. That's not part of the conversation about the housing crisis. So if we're going to be like encouraging urban sprawl more and more and then making people still believe in the American Canadian dream of having like this big house with like a lawn and like take their car and like go to work downtown. And that's still the model that we have. We're still going to need like eight planets to sustain that. So we need to move away from that conversation. But that needs a leadership that acknowledges that what we're living is a crisis and not just climate change. Well, I was going to say, this is Canada's 10th climate plan since 1990, and only the second that's offered a plausible strategy to meet a national target. And the first eight were, like, varied greatly in detail, uh, but they all either exaggerated how effective policies like subsidies, for example, could, could help us, you know? But they didn't They've never said how a target would be met until this one. But even this one doesn't really get into, again, to Stuart's point, it doesn't get into regulations. It doesn't get into the nitty gritty of how regulations will be finalized in the next one to three years without being watered down by politics or further consultations or so forth. Like it's here's what we need to do. And then it stops there. It doesn't go to how do are we going to do this and how are we actually going to do this quickly so we can actually meet this target in eight years. And and Drew, I know you're on the East Coast and you've talked about the oil and gas industry on on, on the show a bunch of times. Does this plan do anything to target, you know, the source of the highest emissions in this country? <laughs> the oil and gas stuff filed under the bad column um, <laughs> of this plan. It is good, bad, and ugly. So we're firmly into bad territory right now. But yeah, I mean, I think... <sighs> The thing is with the the oil production side of this is that this plan does anticipate that oil and gas production will increase by 25 to 34 percent or something like that by 2030, um, which is kind of significant. While at the same time, like aiming for a 31 percent reduction, like emission, like reduction in emissions. So basically, like the idea is that like we can continue to produce oil and gas. And in fact, we can continue to produce more of it, but it will be more green and efficient the way that we like extract the oil and gas. So it'll sort of like balance it out, which... I mean, this is basically a a fantasy um, that doesn't take into account the fact that like most of these emissions come not in the production extraction process of oil and gas, but when we take the product and then later just burn it somewhere downstream. There's still no real like way to account for this. And it seems to all sort of like hinge, um, like Emily was talking about, the sort of uh, carbon capture utilization and storage technology, which I, I do sort of think is is a tendency to buy into magical thinking. I mean, the utilization part of that is to like take the carbon and then like recycle it back into the oil and gas production process, which seems sort of self-defeating if you want to sort of deal with the emissions in this industry. 
So uh, there's some like major issues with, with that part of the plan, for sure. The line taken by the, the provincial government here is that uh, when we produce our oil and gas offshore, the emissions from the production process are very low. So if you expand Newfoundland's offshore uh, oil and gas production, you can meet all these targets and you can still produce the oil and everything will be fine and everyone will live happily ever after. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, the federal government's plan is to like go to war with Alberta to approve an offshore rig in this province. <laughs> and and in and either way, I think even if we were going to do that, we're we're too late for it to be a meaningful effort in the climate crisis, and it still doesn't solve the downstream emissions issue, right? Like if we have a zero emissions offshore rig, the oil that we <laughs> produce still gets burned up somewhere and goes into the atmosphere. We're trying to deal with the supply side of the fossil fuel economy, maybe questionably, but there is some effort to tackle like the demand side on the transportation, the electric vehicle stuff. But even then, to, to come back to Emily's point, even if we replace every single individual vehicle with an electric one, that still doesn't solve any number of all these other problems um, related to the climate crisis that come from car culture. And there's not really a ton in the plan about like mass transit and rail, which is where I think a really serious approach to like long-term structural transformation to deal with carbon economy would be going. To bring the conversation sort of full circle then, um, Stuart, do you contest the phrasing of roadmap for this plan? Because it sounds like it's not holistic enough. It sounds like there's not enough in there to actually meet our targets over the next eight years. Yeah, and I think that kind of weirdly, the Russia-Ukraine situation has kind of made me, and the pandemic also has made me sort of more respectful of the idea of vagueness and government plans because, you know, in terms of geopolitics, you need wiggle room to de-escalate because you don't want to have a red line that you then have to, you know, go to a mm-hmm. war you don't want to go to. Um, so I'm not hugely upset about that. We're looking at a populist movement spreading up in Alberta right now, probably mostly pandemic related, but there are other factors there too. And I would just say the reason that this makes me so nervous is that if we had an unemployment issue because of government policies on climate change in oil and gas in Alberta, that could get really ugly. I'm aware of the fact that that has to happen to a certain extent with battling climate change, but it's just something you have to be incredibly careful about. And then, you know, the second order effects of we're looking at Europe going green and then buying natural gas from Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's an incredible amount of leverage to put in a dictator's hands. And that is kind of what we will be doing the more we shift off of oil and gas. So, <laughs> <laughs> But the good news is that there is plenty of detail in this plan for once. And this is an opportunity for vigorous questions in Parliament if the politicians are serious about having a proper conversation about how we're actually going to meet our targets. And of course, I'm always worried it can all still go off the rails as we focus on politics above all else. And a lot is resting on the next updates in 2023 and 2025. I know there's going to be some climate funding because of this plan in the budget that is coming in literally two days. Do you think we'll ever get a climate change budget from this liberal government that has always been so serious about climate change and and that will effectively address all the questions we've had today? (laughs) <laughs> Probably not in a way that will effectively address all the questions that we've had today. I mean, maybe eventually down the road when the urgency becomes impossible to ignore. The one last point I just sort of wanted to make is that, uh, to actually go back to something Stuart said, the employment piece of this is is quite a big deal, actually, which is why I think that, like, 
the just transition element that everybody's talking about, right? Like, how do we get from like a fossil fuel based economy today to a low carbon one tomorrow? And what do we do with all the sort of livelihoods that are directly tied up in that? Because obviously, um, yeah, like the loss of employment and livelihood is a major political issue that can cause serious social disruption um, left to just play out. Um, And in this way, I think the the, the Newfoundland cod moratorium offers a very instructive example of what happens if you have an ecological crisis that goes unmanaged until the last possible minute and you just throw a whole bunch of people out of work and destroy the entire way of life. That's obviously very bad. And it would be good to sort of like proactively think about like how to wind this industry down as we have all admitted we will have to do by roughly 2050. Or evolve it. It doesn't have to be wind down. Evolve it. Innovate it. Yeah. Yeah. Or evolve it. But like structurally transform, let's say, in a way that's probably not recognizable to like the current status quo. So I don't know. It's, it is it is going to be really sort of like bad and painful if like we continue in this fundamentally like fantastic framework of like we'll have magic carbon capture technology that will allow us to keep pumping oil and gas. Like, I don't know. There's still a little bit of like reality denial, I think, happening. There's no such thing as magic. Is that the note we're ending? <laughs> Tragically, yes. The world is disenchanted. I don't know. I think like the real sort of serious climate change budget that we will someday get for sure um, is the one that sort of like takes that problem of like getting from like A to B and managing all of these people's livelihoods in like an appropriate way, mm-hmm. which we still haven't seen yet. But again, to go back to the good, yeah, there are there are real metrics in this plan now, and real metrics mean you can measure it and you can hold it up for scrutiny and you can like start tweaking those numbers and achieving some goals, and that is unambiguously a good thing. On that note, let's adjourn. That was The Backbench. I'll be back next week with a conversation about someone impacted by or impacting policy in Canada. If you're following along what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely. I know there's so much going on, so tell us what you'd like to hear us discuss, break down, analyze, make sense of, just things you don't understand, because likely chances I don't understand it either. If you listen in Apple Podcasts, you can support us as well as CanadaLand's other two political podcasts for just $2.99 a month. In return, you'll get ad-free episodes and bonus content. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants, and your support. You can email us backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. Emily, where can people find you and follow your work? They can read me uh, in Le Devoir, in the Montreal Gazette, and they can find me on Twitter as well. And Drew, where can people find your coverage of two budgets? Oh, God. Uh, Well, okay. There may only be one. I don't want to oversell this. The provincial budget will certainly be covered. But yes, you can find us at uh, theindependent.ca. We've got lots of great material in the works lately. Um, Killer story about uh, labor disruptions of the nonprofit sector in this province right now. Go check it out. It's wicked. But if you don't want to go directly to the website and you find yourself cursed with a Twitter account like myself, uh, you can find me at Truthinland, like the island, but my name. I apologize for the terrible content that I Stuart, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at thehub.ca, and sometimes I tweet at Stuart X Thompson. And I would just would also like to note that I never got closure on the Justin Bieber thing, so <laughs> I'm going to have to go do some Googling. <laughs> this episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.